Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Truth Be Told. I appreciate you tuning in. Today, I have a very special guest joining me, Dr. Peter Gurry, who is a professor at Phoenix Seminary and also the assistant professor of New Testament studies, as well as the co-director of the Text and Canon Institute. I'm excited to be talking to him today about textual criticism. Dr. Gurry, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Glad to have you here. Uh, textual criticism. This is such a big topic that I think maybe people aren't as familiar with, but could you first give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you relate to this topic? Yeah. So I, um, goodness, how does it, how far back does it go? Um, I got interested in it partly because I was able to take Greek in high school instead of Spanish. Most people took Spanish in high school and I just always, I always had a thing against doing what everybody else did. So I signed up for <laughs> Greek instead of Spanish and, uh, and in the process of taking that class, one of the things we got was a Greek New Testament. And, uh, and I was really fascinated by the fact that there was something behind my English Bible. You know, I had always read my English Bible as a kid growing up. And then when I got to Bible school, um, that's where I first started to learn that there were manuscripts behind my printed Greek New Testament. So for me, it was kind of always this desire to get as far back as I could go in the process of how I got my English Bible. And text criticism was kind of that as far back as I could go. So that's always been partly my interest. And another big part of it, too, has actually been just the manuscripts themselves. Um, I've always had kind of a, an interest in graphic design. And so the visual has always been really appealing to me. And the first time I saw a manuscript in person, I was kind of blown away and thought it was amazing. <laughs> so to realize that, like, you know, every copy of the New Testament that's copied by hand, right, mm -hmm. is unique, is distinctive. Uh, it literally is handmade and that's kind of awesome to me. So, yeah, absolutely. I just went to the Bible museum over the summer and yeah. these are manuscripts that are, you know, dating back to first to second century, but even so just seeing like pieces of a William Tyndale Bible. And I was like, wow, the history behind this, the care exactly. that was put into each page or letter of what was written down. It's incredible. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. incredible. That's right. So, so textual criticism deals a lot in manuscripts. Could you just kind of break down maybe the terms, uh, explain for our viewers who don't know kind of what this study is all about? Yeah, absolutely. So very simply, textual criticism is a discipline that tries to um, get back to the original text for any, any literary work where the, that original is lost. And then the copies that we do have don't always agree with each other. So, uh, you know, People may think, oh, the Bible is that the only thing we need text criticism for. The answer is not by a long shot. <laughs> uh, anything from the ancient world, pretty much any, any piece of literature from the ancient world needs textual criticism done to it. So everything from Homer to you know, Herodotus' history to Plato and Aristotle and um, all the way up until even after the invention of the printing press. So even something like Shakespeare's plays require some element of textual criticism because you have multiple printed editions of them. And scholars argue about which one represents, you know, the, the play as he wanted it to be done. <laughs> so even something as late as, as um, Shakespeare. And then, frankly, even after that, some of the most complicated problems I've ever encountered in text criticism are not from the ancient world. They're from the modern world, where you have something like a modern poet who handwrote his poems, then sent them to the editor to have them published. The editor made changes that became the first edition. And then later uh, the publisher put out a second edition where he revised them. And now some scholar a hundred years later is trying to figure out which version of his poems they should print in a new anthology. Right. Mm. So actually in some ways, the problems of text criticism get more complicated in the modern period because 
you may know that the author was involved at multiple stages of the process, whereas in the ancient world, we just often don't know that. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You don't really think of modern issues with text. You know, you think the, the more modern we get, the less problems we would have. And I like that you actually brought up other texts as well, because although we're talking about the Bible, this is something that's done you know, across historical texts, or uh, like you mentioned, poetic texts, things like that. And uh, it's just, it's important to make that distinction. Because if someone goes into, you know, just googling this term, textual criticism, they're brought into all these different texts, it's like, well, what what are they even talking about with the Bible then? And so essentially, it's the same process for each, uh, whatever literary work you're looking at, you're trying to get back to the original, what did the writer originally intend to put down on paper? What's the Mm -hmm. closest we can get to that? Right. So, so then what's the what's the process look like for a textual critic? What does it look like start to finish? You know, you, you get a manuscript in or yeah. maybe 10 manuscripts. What, what do you what does it look like during the day for a textual critic? Yeah. So, you know, you talk about the process as a whole and then you can maybe talk about what do I do in a given day? Sure. The process as a whole is essentially <clears throat> first step is something like we try to collect as many of the manuscripts as we can get our get our get a hold of. OK. Um, and then the next step is the very tedious one of comparing them to each other, right? Ideally, word by word and line by line. The reality is with New Testament, we have so many manuscripts that nobody's compared them all completely, right? Except in certain small sections of the New Testament, because there's just simply too many of them, right? In the case of the Gospels, you have, you know, thousands, in some cases, thousands of Greek, just Greek manuscripts. We're not even talking yet about Latin or Syriac or any of the other languages that it was translated into. Just in Greek, you have a couple thousand manuscripts. And it's something like Matthew's Gospel, nobody's gone through all 28 chapters and compared all of these thousands of manuscripts at every possible point. It's just too much. So what that means then is you end up, generally speaking, trying to compare them in selections, right? You take out points in the text. You say, I'm going to compare as many of them as I can at these points. Mm -hmm. Then you use that to kind of will out the ones where you say, okay, these ones we know are so similar to each other that we can actually leave them aside and maybe just take a handful of representatives of them. Okay. Then once you do that, okay, you're comparing them again, you start to produce what's called the apparatus, which is the stuff at the bottom of the text in a printed Greek New Testament, which lists the differences between the manuscripts. Then as a scholar, you start to go through those and work through them in detail and say, okay, at each point, as best I can tell, having studied manuscripts and knowing Greek and studied Matthew's gospel, let's say, and all the rest, what do I think is the most likely original reading at each point? And what do I think went wrong in the process, right? Or another way to say it is, why did it get changed, okay? And you do that, and that's essentially the process of producing a critical edition. And it's that printed critical edition that then gets sort of passed off, if you can think of it that way, handed off to people like commentators or pastors or seminarians or, you know, whoever, or Bible translators, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of it. And then there's a, there's a long, I should say a long, but there's a, there's a, um, a long studied process of how we work through those differences to try to determine, you know, when I have five different readings, cause I've got a hundred manuscripts, how do I try to decide which one I think is the original? And that's, that's essentially text criticism. And you bring up a good point. You said, uh, we try and think, which one do I think is the most accurate? And throughout this interview, we're going to go over kind of three, because overall, we're building trust in the Bible, right? Trust in the text that we have in front of us in church, or just throughout the week as we're reading it, how do we trust the Bible that we have? So we're going to go through three kind of topics here. Um, The first one being trust in the Bible, despite all of the variations we have, or all of the variants 
Um, you could talk about variations in texts or manuscripts or variations as far as this word is different from this word. Um, and, and it brings up questions of biblical accuracy. So how can we trust the Bible despite all of the variants? Uh, skeptics like Bart Ehrman will bring out how many variants there are and um, try and get people to, you know, question the, the text in front of them a little bit. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, so it's a, you know, it could be a long answer, a short answer. <laughs> I'll give you the short answer. <laughs> okay. Um, the short answer, I think, is we can have we can have really good confidence in the in the texts um, of our manuscripts as a whole. I would say, but then also the texts that have been produced by scholars over the over the last few centuries. Um, for for what I would say, three reasons. One is the relative age of our manuscripts. We have manuscripts going back all the way to the second and third century, which is pretty remarkable for ancient an ancient uh, piece of writing. Um, other things, many other things don't come close. Second is the number of manuscripts. We have a lot of them. Now, number alone is not that great, right? I always sure. tell my students, if you have a thousand bad manuscripts, you have a thousand bad manuscripts, right? right? I would take one good manuscript over a thousand bad ones any day. <laughs> okay. But then it's the third point that really is kind of the clincher. So age, number, and then quality, the relative quality of our manuscripts. Overall, okay, the scribes that copied the New Testament text did a good job, Okay. Uh, and we can show that in different ways. One way we could do it is take some of our earliest manuscripts and compare them to some of our later, latest manuscripts and show that they agree sometimes in the, in a, in the percentile of like 90% in places where there's disagreement among all the manuscripts we've compared. They still agree, like an earliest one agrees with the latest one at like 90%. You know, that's pretty amazing when you figure that. So you're talking about a thousand years between the two, okay? Uh, I can tell you, show you even more specific comparisons in like a in like a stream of the copying where it's like I could take a later manuscript that's a thousand years apart from another one and they're even closer than 90%, right? Okay. And of course there's some that are not that close. There's others that are not as good. But mm -hmm. so I would say those three things, the age of the manuscripts, we have manuscripts that go back quite early. Um, the number of manuscripts, we just we frankly have more manuscripts than we can even deal with as scholars in the case of the New Testament. And then the third one is the, the overall quality of them. So compare that to something else, like let's a good comparison might be to say, compare the gospel of Matthew to the gospel of Thomas. Okay, yeah. the gospel of Thomas, some of your listeners may have heard of, it's this probably second century gospel. It's not really a narrative. It's just a collection of 114 sayings of Jesus, some of which, you know, match very closely to what's in our gospels, some of which don't. But we have a total, if I, if, I, if, I'm, if I remember right, we have a total of four copies of the Gospel of Thomas. Three of them are in Greek, which is we know is the language it was originally written in. Those three are all very fragmentary. The only complete copy we have of the Gospel of Thomas is in Coptic, so it's a translation. Hmm. Let's compare that to Matthew, where, my goodness, our earliest copy of Matthew is, uh, what, third century? Maybe has it's fragmentary around the edges and stuff. Sure. But our early substantial copies in Greek, we're not, we're not dependent on any of the versions to get our text of Matthew, right? Mm. Um, we can still use them because they can be helpful, but we're not dependent on them. It's not like without them, we would, we would, we would have lost whole chapters of Matthew, let's say. Right. right? So it just doesn't quite compare. And I, I just think when it comes to reasons to doubt the new Testament or not have confidence in it, textual criticism is probably one of the worst ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's just my opinion, but, but it is what it is. It's a good point. I think a lot of people would say, oh, we have so many copies. That means there's so much more room for error. So this comparison is right. wrong. This comparison is wrong. But you're saying the percentage at which they match 
or, or the vast majority of them match is, is really good compared yeah. to uh, other textual criticism you would do on something, you know, a different literary work. Right. Or certainly at the very least worse than it could be. Right. right. I mean, there just, there just aren't places where it's like, well, we just have no idea what Matthew right. wrote. Right. It's like, well, he either said this or he said that. He either said and or he said but. Now, right. depending on the context, that might be important, but in Greek, it's not that big of a difference. Now, I've heard some people break up, you know, different variants, whether it be a word or a passage, and they'll say that it's viable or meaningful or non-viable, non-meaningful. Do you follow yeah. those uh, delineations or is that kind of more yeah. layman's terms? Yeah, that can be very helpful for people who, who don't, you know, don't don't do what I do for a living. <laughs> Right. Um, that can be very helpful. So what we mean is we're saying, look, look, there are lots of differences between our manuscripts. And that's because we have a lot of different manuscripts and because copying by hand is really hard. OK, if you don't believe me, try it sometime. Take take go the Gospel of Matthew and try to copy the whole thing by hand and see how many mistakes you make. OK, so before you criticize the scribes, try to do what they did. Um, so, you know, we don't know exactly how many variants we have. The best estimate and I say it's the best because it's mine. So obviously I'm, I'm biased towards thinking <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> but the, the best one we have is that there are about half a million differences uh, in our manuscripts. That's a ton because, you know, the New Testament is like 230,000 words long, you know, right. that kind of a deal. So it's a lot more. More variants um, than words, in other more words. More variants than words. So, you know, Bart, somebody like Bartman likes to say that. He's right. not statistically wrong yeah. about that. He's right. Um so, so these categories of meaningful and viable help us kind of put those numbers in perspective. Because if, if that's all we know, it sounds like, oh, yeah, gosh, how could you ever think you could get back to the original? Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, lots and lots of variants, and, and, Bar and Bart Ehrman is quite good at reminding folks of this, although sometimes they don't hear him. But the, the, the vast majority of our, of our variants are either meaningless, okay, that is to say, uh, they literally don't mean anything. <laughs> I'll give you an example, okay. If you read an email from me and you see the word T-E-H, right, you would know immediately that is not an English word. Right. And you'd probably also immediately recognize that the word I meant to write was T-H-E, the. Yeah. Okay. You would hardly even think about, about it. You just correct that in your head as you read it. It wouldn't be a big right. deal at all. Might not even there catch are lots it. Of, you wouldn't even catch it, maybe. There are differences like that in Greek where the scribe literally just wrote the wrong thing. He jumbled mm -hmm. the letters up. Okay. Others, others, um, are, uh, let's say, like a slight change, okay? A very slight change in meaning. You can add the article in Greek and maybe not change the meaning hardly at all, at least not in any way that would affect an English translation, okay? Um, then then there, are just, there, are, there are errors that maybe do change the meaning, but because they're found in manuscripts that we know aren't the best, or they're found in so few manuscripts maybe, or they're found in one isolated part of the manuscript tradition or, or what we just immediately know as scholars, like we're just not going to take that seriously. Right. Okay. So there's a whole huge bucket of variants that any trained scholar would have no trouble saying, I know that's not the original. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, to put some hard numbers on it. Okay. I can use some hard numbers. We take the book of Jude book of Jude has 25 verses. Okay. And about 461 words in Greek. We have about 560 Greek manuscripts of Jude that one scholar named Tommy Wasserman actually has gone through and compared them all at every place. Okay. Oh, wow. The result is I counted. All right. About 1,694 variants. So again, put that in perspective, 461 words in Greek and 1,694 variants. Right. right. 
So more than triple. Um, if you go through those, though, we could say, if you go through and actually look at them, what kind of differences are they? 50% of those are either nonsense reading. So I got the example I gave you, T-E-H, okay? A word that doesn't make sense, but we know what he meant to write probably. Or they're what we call singular readings. That is, it's a reading found only in a sing single manuscript, which mm -hmm. almost always tells us that, okay, this is, this is a scribe's accident and certainly not the original. Okay? Right. It's, it's rare that the original would survive in only a single manuscript. Not impossible, but pretty rare. Okay. So 50% immediately, you can just cut out 50% and say, just based on the type of variant they are, without hardly even looking at them, you just know you can pretty much ignore them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of the remaining about 785, 145 of those variants are listed in the latest edition of the Greek New Testament used by my students and other New Testament scholars, okay, like myself. The number is further reduced to 47 variants in the edition used for Bible translators. Are, are you still with me? We start at 1,694. We're now down to 47. Okay, right. That's an edition of the Greek New Testament designed specifically for translators to give them the variants they think translators should pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have it on good authority. The next edition of that Greek New Testament will have even fewer <laughs> because the word that they've gotten from translators who actually work in the field, you know, uh, have said, we don't need this many. Right. <laughs> okay. So keep in mind that number will probably go down in the next edition, not up. By the time you get to the footnotes in major English translations, I have found one variant in the book of Jude in the ESV translation, two in the NIV, the newest edition of 2011, five in the most recent, uh, the Christian Standard Bible, which some of your may, readers may have heard about. Okay, so mm -hmm. five. That's the one that has the most. So again, that's out of 1,694 variants total. If you do the percentage, that's about less than 0.3%. Okay. And Judah actually is kind of tough textually. If we were to do a different book that doesn't have as, as difficult of a transmission history, those numbers would probably be smaller for, for a comparative amount of text. Okay. But Judah actually has some naughty textual problems. So just that's, that's one way to measure it for folks who've never even looked at a Greek New Testament. You can say something like in the book of Jude, about 0.3% of the variants make it into something like the Christian Standard Bible. That's much more palatable okay. that way, I think. Yeah. And, and even then, I mean, you have, you boiled it down at one point to 40 something variants, but that doesn't yeah. mean from that, that you can't extrapolate what makes sense, what seems to fit based on right. other verses, you know, line upon line, pretext right. on pretext. So right. it's not to say that you can't come up with what's a, a reasonable right. translation of those, right. those words. Right. And honestly, the, the best response is to say like, well, which ones matter? And, right. and let them answer, honestly. If right. they have an answer, great. Then you can go from there. It's not, it's not a dishonest question. Right. But just most people don't actually know. They just have heard this kind of little tidbit and just say, well, like, okay, well, how many of them matter? Which ones matter? You know, I could give you an example in Jude. Jude 5 is a good example of a variant that actually does matter. Okay. But it's not like the choice in Jude 5 changes the, the point of the book of Jude. <laughs> right, right. It's not like, you know, I was telling you, it's not like all of a sudden, if you pick these other set of variants, you get a Jesus who's not raised from the dead. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard some examples like uh, Paul and I don't know if it's first or second Thessalonians says I was gentle among you. And one translation right. says I was horses among you and it's probably not horses, you know, just right. use your context clues. Right. I think or, he says, I think he says it's an infant. I was an infant among you. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah. It's, it's similar to the word for horse, but not the same, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, then, no, you're right. So it's like either way he's gentle. Right. <laughs> Right. It's a question of what he compares himself to being gentle as. Right. You see. And so I would never say that variants don't matter for interpretation. Sometimes mm -hmm. they do. Okay. 
And sometimes they matter in the history of history of interpretation, right? Because one, mm-hmm. one thing that I think is very valuable about textual criticism is to remember that not everyone in church history has read the exact same Bible that you have, mm-hmm. right? And I don't just mean transra- t- translations, like they read the King James instead of your NIV, but right. I mean, they actually read a different Greek text. In some cases, they read a Latin text instead of a Greek text, right? Or they read a Syriac text instead of either one. But the point is to say, you know, at times it actually is important to know what did our forebears in the faith actually read. Right. So let's shift then to the idea of the different manuscripts. We kind of went through variants, which are more specific, you know, could be specific words or, or letters that are different across manuscripts. But then there's also so many different types of manuscripts. So what is the gold standard? Like, you know, if something comes across your desk and it's like, oh, we found this thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. do you want it to be older or newer or yeah. More right. in line with something than something else. Hmm. Well, let's just start with older. I mean, older in some ways is always better, partly because we just have fewer of them. Right? Mm-hmm. So the farther back you go, the less we have. So in that sense, like older is always better just because it's going to be rarer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and for that reason, it's going to be more interesting, let's say. Right. Okay. However, uh, older is not necessarily better in terms of just because it's older, it has a better text. Right. right. Could still a scribe be in the third century may be a lousy scribe. Yeah. And a scribe in the 10th century may be a great scribe, and he's copying a manuscript that's been copied by other great scribes. And thus his text ends up actually in the long run to be better. Mm-hmm. So um, but yeah, in general, it's safe to say earlier is always is always in a sense more exciting for sure. Um, but oftentimes our earliest manuscripts are more fragmentary. So um you do have some really some you know complete copies of books in the third century, mm-hmm. but our first complete copy of the Holy New Testament isn't until the fourth century. And, and that's where, where things really start to take off mm-hmm. um, in terms of evidence. But we, like I said, we have, we have some manuscripts that go all the way back to the second century that are quite important because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a mistake though, the thing, I think sometimes people have an idea that the, the more it was copied, the worse things got. Mm. Right. Um, and so a common comparison, something like the telephone game, you know, mm-hmm. the copying must've been like the telephone game. And so that by the end of the, the end of the transmission, it's, you have right. no idea. It's a totally different message. Yeah. Um, there's a number of problems with that, with that comparison. One is in the telephone game, nobody ever stops to, to correct themselves. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. You're not yeah. allowed in the telephone game to stop and say, well, I'm going to jump, jump back three yeah. people and ask them what they said and thus circumvent the people in between who got right. it wrong. But in copying, that's exactly what you can do sometimes. Yeah. So we actually have manuscripts where the scribe may tell us something like, this manuscript was copied from a very early copy. And the, the manuscript we're looking at is 13th, 14th century, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, and we happen to know that he's copying from something in the 4th century, hmm. right? His 4th century uh, exemplar, we call the exemplar, what he's copying from is now lost to us, but we have his copy. Right. So, yeah. That answer your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because right. I, I know there's just, there's different schools of thought, right? There's, do we look yeah. at the, the Byzantine text or do we look uh, at, yes. you know, and maybe you could go into that right. a little bit, different schools of thought on that. Yes, yeah, sure. So there are essentially three main schools of thought in, in my discipline. Uh, the, the one I practice is often called reasoned eclecticism. And generally speaking, those in my camp prefer earlier manuscripts when they can get them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not hopefully not blindly, but in general, it's a general mm-hmm. rule, and they tend to pr- pr- um, to value the early papyri 
and two manuscripts in particular known as Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. All right, they tend to put a lot of weight on those ones, I think rightly, okay? Um, but they don't think that any of those old manuscripts are completely right. And so they, it's called reasoned eclecticism because it's eclectic. They sometimes follow this manuscript and sometimes follow this other manuscript, right? So it's a, there's a kind of choosing to it, okay? They put reasoned in the name, so that makes them sound pretty good. Correct, right? Right. That's right. We are reasonable. Um, so, okay, then in contrast to that, you have something that's called thoroughgoing eclecticism, all right? It's hopefully not unreasonable. But thoroughgoing eclecticism, because their argument is, well, we really don't know enough about the history of how these manuscripts were copied or what they were copied from. So the original reading really could be in any manuscript. And we just need to consider things like the author's style, okay, uh, the, the author's theology even, and Greek style at the time these documents were written as compared and contrasted with Greek style adopted later by scribes. Um, and so we can kind of ignore the date to some degree, actually, because that doesn't really matter that much. Really what matters is things that are internal to the text itself, right? What makes the most sense in context, let's say. Right. So that's called thoroughgoing eclecticism. There aren't that many that practice that today. There never, there really never have been, but there aren't that many today. Okay. And then the third category is what we call Byzantine priority. And that approach says, look, the majority of our manuscripts are later, okay, from the ninth century and later, but it's really remarkable how much they tend to agree with each other in that later stage. And if we assume that those, all those manuscripts, of which we have a lot later, were copied from earlier manuscripts, then we should assume the original text is somewhere in that large group of later manuscripts, mm -hmm. okay? Um, so that's known as the Byzantine priority position. It's different. I should stress it's different than King James onlyism. Okay. Right. Sometimes King James onlyists like that view, but it is not the same thing. And usually those who are Byzantine priority are not King James only. Hmm. All right. So those are kind of the three main, three main uh, views. I have not tried to tell you why they're all wrong or why some of them are wrong, but your readers or listeners can, can track that down for themselves and learn and learn more. Yeah. But those are the three ones. I appreciate that. I think you you fall well within your reasonable category that you put yourself in. <laughs> I That's try to be at least reasonable. It's the baseline. So you mentioned earlier um, why we can trust manuscripts despite having so many of them from across such a different or such a vast period of time because the yeah. three things you're looking at, uh, quality, quantity, and you said time as well, right? Date that it's from. Yeah. Yeah. So you would say, despite having so many, that's actually a good thing, a positive thing to have vast quantities, even though it leads to more variations in the text. Right. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a bit, a bit of a blessing and a curse, mm -hmm. right? If we, if we can be on, we should be honest about that. It's a bit of a blessing and a curse. The blessing is, like you said, we have so much evidence, but then so much evidence becomes a kind of curse because it's so much evidence and we can't work through it all completely. Right. Um, what I would say is, you know, if we only had one manuscript of the New Testament, we'd obviously have zero variants. Right. But that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing because it might be that much harder to tell where the errors are in that particular right. manuscript. The fact that we have so many manuscripts means there's a whole lot of material for me as a textual critic to learn from. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just have tons of manuscripts that I can study and get a better grasp of the kind of mistakes that scribes make and scribes are human beings. So sometimes they surprise us. Right. right? But the more of them, I have more of their work. I have to study the more skilled I get at recognizing when things go wrong. You know, as, mm -hmm. as one of my professors taught me, well, he said in this discipline, we really only learn things about scribes when they messed up. 
you know, when they did it right, we actually don't, as scholars, we don't learn that much from them. Right. So, you know, we as scholars often tend to focus mostly on where they messed up. <laughs> Obviously, as a Christian, we're, we're generally more interested in where they got it right, mm-hmm. right? Because we want to know what has God said in the scriptures. But as someone who's, whose job it is to try to get us back as best we can to those original words, actually studying where they got it wrong is more of a benefit to me. I, I learned quite a bit more. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's why I kind of say it's, a, you know, a bit of a blessing and a curse to it, you know, the problem becomes its own solution. Right. I, I think sometimes that, um, that blessing and a curse where you're focused in on some of the, the places they messed up or they, they weren't yeah. as accurate can, w- when people start to look into this field, um, especially if they're being approached by a skeptic about, you know, how many variations or you have so many things that ha- they haven't even looked through yet. Yeah. Um, it can kind of seem like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know that I can trust my Bible. But if you right. think about it, how much theology has come out of, you know, how much different theology do we have over so many years? I mean, there's so many different branches of Christianity, so many yes. different beliefs on this or that. In the field yes. of textual criticism, there's actually probably less differentiation across the board than there is yeah, in how we true. interpret that text. Yeah, later. no, that's right. No, that's right. And that's why I say, I think text criticism is one of the worst reasons you can be skeptical about the Bible. Frankly. Right. Um, and, and that brings up a good point. Like when we talk about the differences, I could not show you a manuscript of the Bible that is the Arminian version from scribes. Right. Okay. Or the, uh, you know, the Calvinist manuscript. Because right. they just aren't that way. The differences mm-hmm. between Calvinism and Arminianism, though, maybe at some points variants get involved, but like they don't rest on that at all, mm-hmm. right? They're much higher level differences. Now, does that mean that theology never influenced the scribes? No, it sometimes did. Sometimes mm-hmm. they made changes, either wittingly or unwittingly, that was influenced by their own theology or church practice or or whatever, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can be it's it can be very hard to prove that. So I tend to be sometimes on the skeptical side of those arguments. Not to say it didn't happen; it certainly sure. did. But just sometimes I'm a little bit. I want to really see the proof that that's the motivating reason, as opposed right. to just a normal kind of mistake that scribes make in copying because it's hard. Um, but yes, there are definitely places where you can see theology probably influencing the text mm-hmm. for sure. But you're working in empirical data, so for someone to make the claim that oh this person's theology dictated how they translated that's more more vague in a way you know it's a little bit more abstract so it's harder yeah. to prove you know right it's harder to so. prove and it's and again it's not that it doesn't happen there's sometimes where you think i mean it's sure. like especially if you take this is not my direct field but take the greek translation of the old testament there mm-hmm. are absolutely places where you can show that the translator is being influenced by their theology where they let's say don't want to use the divine name in mm-hmm. a certain place they want to try right. to avoid it um, or they don't want to make God sound too human. Mm-hmm. And, and look, all you have to do is think translators do the same thing today too, right? A translator by any, any good translator is trying to make the text understandable to the people in their day. A, a perfect example of this is what does an English translator, especially aimed at an American audience, do with the Greek word doulos? Do you translate it as servant or slave or bond servant or what? As soon as you say use the word slave, an American reader who doesn't know that much about the first century is going to immediately download everything they know from antebellum slavery in this country into the Bible, where it does not belong. Some of it does not Mm -hmm. belong, right? Um, So, but then do you say servant, which is like probably 
that's probably not really what a do loss is. In most we have cases. our own connotations Some, with that word too. Right. Exactly. And then bond servant, it's like, what in the world is a bond servant? Right. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, there's a 16th century word, 17th century word that nobody uses today in common right. speech. So translators always have this difficulty of trying to make the result of their work understandable to the audience they're aiming for while still being faithful to the original. Mm-hmm. And certainly ancient translators felt that same pressure, but in some cases, copyists did as well. Because even though their their job is quite different from translation, okay, I want to be clear. Right. In some ways, they they are still trying to make a text that's understandable, and so sometimes they may again, how however much intention may be involved on their part, they are smoothing the text out to make it easier to understand, not harder. Right. In general. And we're kind of verging onto the third kind of section I wanted to go into was trust in the Bible despite human error, because yeah. a lot of this is, I mean, it's all done by humans, or I guess we, we probably have computer algorithms that work out some things now, but a, a lot of the work is done by people and people make mistakes. People are biased. So, yes, I mean, I kind of want to go into translations just a little bit, but even just on uh, textual criticism, there are people that are not christian or people that do not ascribe to christianity or or any in any form right sure what's what's their motivation for for doing this work um i know i think this has been a stumbling block as as i prepared for this interview people have been like i want to ask ask him why so many new testament scholars why are they not christian how do they you know how do (laughs) they look so deeply at the text and then yeah not practice it i guess the first thing i say to your listeners is um you shouldn't feel too bad about asking the question i certainly had that question myself as a student. Um, and it was, the question was partly answered over the years of getting to know people that, you know, mm-hmm. either aren't Christians at all, or certainly are not um, evangelical Christians the way I am and still study the same things that I do. So part of it's just, you know, getting to actually know these people. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I wouldn't, I'd want to be careful not to presume to speak for all of them. Well, I guess I could just say um, there's any number of reasons. One, one thing is people should probably know a lot of people who get into this at the academic level, they have some background in Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it is relatively rare that somebody gets to the level of being a published scholar and they literally like, they're like a Buddhist or they've right. been an atheist their whole life. There mm-hmm. are, I think probably a few, but they are few and far between. So I would say probably what happened for a lot of these folks is they're, they started, they, they, they grew up as some kind of Christian and that, is why they got so interested in the Bible in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then maybe their theology changed as they studied. Okay. In some cases. Um, and then maybe for some, at some point, it's just the sheer fascination of the subject. You know, mm-hmm. anybody can get interested, interested in a puzzle at some level, whether you right. care about what the picture is or not. <laughs> yeah. If I could use that analogy. So, you know, like I always say, why do I do text criticism? Because it's fun. Right. I mean, it's not the only reason, obviously, but it is one reason. I just really enjoy it. I think it's fun. It's fascinating. There's all kinds of mm-hmm. fun stuff to learn. And at some level, it's just engaging to the mind. Again, that's op- for me personally, that's not the only reason I do it. Sure. But it is a reason. It's part of the motivation. I just enjoy it. Um, so uh, I think that's a, a big part of the answer. A lot of people that do it actually are some form of Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, they're, they're not conservative um, sure. or whatever. So. I think people's question is just if there's someone that um, doesn't believe in what's written, right. Practicing what is written in the text, what would be their motivation for getting it right? Uh, You know, doing the work. Well, I think um, 
again, I think at some point, probably just the sheer fascination of the question does maybe hold their interest. I think in, in other cases, they, they maybe don't. So a, an example here might actually be somebody like Bart Ehrman. Mm-hmm. Um, this may surprise some listeners, but, but Bart Ehrman hasn't really written on textual criticism and hasn't really done research in textual criticism for a long time. Um, that's how he got his start. Um, and he certainly, to my, to my knowledge, has kept up with the discipline. Right. But, you know, I couldn't point you to an article or even a book that he's written on the subject in the last probably 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you count updates to two books he wrote. Before sure. that. Um, so I think somebody like him probably has more or less lost interest in it because he's like, what's, what is the big deal? And I do mm-hmm. often find that if you don't have a, what I would call, a high view of scripture where you think it's inspired and that means it's, you know, it's without error. Um, I don't think you often, and in some cases you don't have as much a motivation mm-hmm. to, to do it um, because you might look at it and say, look, are the scholarly editions we have are close enough that who cares? Right. You know, in some cases people are, I think some people probably are interested precisely because they think it disproves my my version my belief in the inspiration of scripture right mm-hmm. so they actually think it's valuable for doing precisely because they can use it to challenge hmm. my belief in the scriptures that makes sense like yeah that may well be a motivation for some people um so yeah there are definitely new testament scholars that in in my opinion without knowing their hearts seem sure. to be seem to enjoy using their scholarship to disprove the christian faith right right and, and i guess the beauty of that though is that you know, they might be working hard to disprove it, but our view of the Bible is that it should stand up to criticism, whether it's textual right. criticism or worldview criticism. Right. So, you know, right. yeah, in right. some ways I want, I almost want people that are against it working on it to, <laughs> right. you know, see that it stands up to the critique. And I think it right. does. And, well, and that's the, that's the thing is we, we have a, there's a real sense in which our faith is a public one, mm-hmm. Right. We don't claim to have lost. Um, we, we don't have lost golden tablets that nobody has access to. <laughs> now okay. we do have lost originals. Okay, we do have yeah. lost autographs. But none of us claim that like that that our book has been translated from those lost originals and nobody has access to the original language anymore. Like, right. if you want to study the text of the New Testament, here it is. Here's all the manuscripts. Have mm-hmm. at it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not hiding it somewhere in a vault and saying no, you're not allowed to look at it. Right. Um, so yeah, in that sense, it's 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 an open faith. Um, it's public. Well, I just have one last question. I think we've we've kind of gone through the three sections: trusting the Bible despite the variance we have, the vast variety of manuscripts, as well as the potential for human error, which really any literary work has. But the Bible seems to still kind of come out on top as far as that goes. But I'm curious for you, what is like the most interesting part of your job what's the thing that you're just like obviously you're in the text and you, you yeah. mentioned it's like a puzzle in a way but yeah. what's the thing where you're like man i wish people got this about my job because this field is interesting to me you know share that joy with us for a little bit oh man well that's 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 a whole second podcast that's <laughs> there's so much <laughs> all right so let me i'll give you i'll give you try to give you a couple okay okay um Man, so you know, sometimes students will ask why I bother to do this. Okay, it's not for me anymore. Apologetic. Okay, mm-hmm. I don't still, you know, this isn't still a point where where I need to shore up my faith in terms right. of trust in the Bible, and that's probably not surprising. I've been doing it long enough that I've mm-hmm. kind of settled the matter for my own sake. But um, but I do think that even if even if tomorrow 
we discovered the autographs of all the New Testament books, and we were all convinced that those were the autographs. Mm-hmm. I would still keep studying the manuscripts that we have. Okay, why would I do that? One, because as I said earlier, these are the these are these were actual people's Bibles. Mm-hmm. Okay, and to some degree, I want to know what people were reading. So, I'm fascinated in Codex Vaticanus from the fourth century because that's somebody's Bible. It's a huge Bible. It's mammoth. It's Old and New Testament. It's just huge. It's not the kind of thing anybody was carrying to church with them. <laughs> right. So who made this thing? What did they use it for? Right. Mm-hmm. Why was it so big? How much time did it take to make it? How much money did it cost? The answer mm-hmm. to, to those last two is a lot, <laughs> a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> somebody later on in, in the Middle Ages came along and re-inked the entire thing. Right. Rewrote over the ink because the ink had faded, mm. which tells me that it's still being used in the Middle Ages, hundreds of years after it had been made. Okay. But this person who re-inked it didn't re-ink every letter hmm. because they thought, well, no, that letter doesn't belong there. Oftentimes, it's just a matter of spelling. No, we don't spell it the word that way, so I'm not going to re-ink that letter. Right. Right? Other times, it's maybe a whole word. They go, no, no, that word doesn't belong in the text, hmm. so I'm not going to re-ink it. <laughs> so I would say it's at one level, uh, it's fascinating to study these actual Bibles that people use because they are a window onto history. They give us a picture of who used them, how did they use them. You know, why didn't they re-ink this word? They did re-ink that word and all these different questions. Where did they put the paragraph breaks? So, you know, one question I'm just fascinated in is how how we got the Bible is a big, big question. But as part of that question, answering the question, how people read it. Mm. And the way people copied it, formatted it, right? Um, Broke it up into paragraphs, then eventually divided it into verses to move forward to the 16th century. Sure. Um, The way they put headings in, what they titled the books, that little part in some Bibles after the title, but before the text actually starts, somebody had to write that, <laughs> right? <laughs> that fascinates me because it's a question of how have people read the Bible, okay? And I just find that fascinating. It's how people have thought about the most it's important how people book. have thought about the Bible. And yeah. one of the reasons why I love it is because it reminds me that I'm not the first person who's ever read it, mm-hmm. okay? We have a bad tendency, especially in America, to think, that my church is probably the first church that's ever read the Bible and we've figured everything out. And like everything that we do at my church is like, that's, that's the way you do it. Cause we just read the Bible and that's the end of the story. Right. And the reality is, well, what weren't there 2000 years of people that went before you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I just, for me, part of, I guess, part of the joy of text criticism is that it's kind of a, a branch of, of church history. Yeah. And I've always loved church history since I first learned it because I, I didn't grow up with a lot of church history i kind of grew mm-hmm. up in that way i described like i just thought my church was like the first one ever you know right. we were found in like 1960 something and it was like well we've been right. around for 40 <laughs> 40 years and <laughs> and we've got it and then i realized like oh my gosh there's all these people that came before me and some of them asked really hard questions some of them gave brilliant answers to those hard questions okay mm-hmm. so studying the manuscripts for me is just you know one part of that fascinating question of learning from those who've gone before me and and frankly who've been faithful mm-hmm. And I've gone before. And I'd say that's another big thing that I love about my discipline. It reminds me of, um, it reminds me not to cr- take the Bible I have for granted, right? The Bible that I have, ha- I have it because so many people have gone before me. From scribes who copied it, to printers who printed it, right? To translators who translated it, to scholars who worked on the manuscripts and studied the Greek so that they knew what the Greek word meant or, and all that. Right. And of mm-hmm. course, interpretation is involved and human judgment is involved in all that process. And that's, that's part of what, I, what fascinates me. 
but there's also just a faithfulness element to it that I should be grateful for. Mm-hmm. Right. If it weren't for them, I just wouldn't have. And, and frankly, we are probably in the best, aside from the first few generations that actually were reading the autographs, let's say, mm-hmm. <laughs> we are probably in one of the best positions anybody's ever been in in history. Right. We have more manuscripts, at least for one group of people to look at than probably ever has been. Um, we've studied them longer than anybody has been. We have more English translations that are good than anybody has. We have more resources to study the Greek and the, you know, like that doesn't mean that we have everything resolved and, and figured out in terms of what the text means or whatever, but sure. it just like, we're in a tremendous position. So I guess I would say to people, don't forget that. Be really grateful and then read your Bible. Yeah. Right? I mean, think how stupid, I mean, future generations will look back and be like, wow, they had all that and they still didn't read their Bible. Yeah, <laughs> they spent all of their time arguing about whether this translation or that one was better when they're basically the same and they didn't actually bother reading it. <laughs> right. Right. What a, what a terrible waste that would yeah. be. And so, you know, to kind of just p- pick up on that, another reason why I love doing what I do is because um, it forces me to pay close attention to the text of scripture. Uh, just this morning, to give you an example, I'm reading, reading, reading Hebrews 6. There was a variant, and frankly, as still often happens for me when I'm looking at variants in my Greek New Testament, I looked at it and went, what is the difference between those two? And sat with it for about five minutes and couldn't really get an answer that I was happy with. So pulled up a commentary on Hebrews that gave me, that that walked through the problem really well. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's that's the difference in meaning, right, between these two. It's It's a single letter difference, Yeah. whether there's a sigma or a nu for the Greek students, an S or an N. Okay, on the word, uh, but it changes the case of the of the word, and that then slightly changes how it what, what its function in the sentence is. And um, you know, paying attention to the variant forced me to read that verse of Hebrews much more closely than I would have otherwise. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's so, awesome. I mean, that's, that's what we're all supposed to be doing when we study, right? It's like you have correct. the Bible as a whole, then you separate it out and you say, yep. I'm going to work on this chapter today, and then maybe this yep. verse, and then right. you're just going one step deeper and saying this word. Okay. Let me go a little that's bit right. deeper into that. And that's exactly. awesome. At the end of the day, my confidence in the Bible is largely um, based on the way that Jesus treated it. Um, and then, and then frankly, my own experience with the Bible, like mm-hmm. when I read the Bible and I read it next to the critics of the Bible, I find the Bible is more reliable Yeah, <laughs> and I find it's far more impressive. It says things that are far more significant than anything the critics have ever said about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I give it my trust. Yeah, I think textual criticism should never be something that makes or breaks a person's faith. But I think if someone hasn't looked into the study, it could be yes. something that might shake them if presented a certain way. Correct. So just to make them aware of the topic, I, I think that's yep. why you know I wanted to do this with you today. And yep. I really appreciate you uh, joining us and working us through the topic because it is huge. And I hope people will keep on listening and studying and like you said, oftentimes what, what happens is people have never heard about it. And the first time they hear about it, then they go, oh, well, what else don't I know? Right. What else haven't I been told? Right. And so that's where skepticism can start to creep in. And I just encourage your listeners, when that happens, first of all, you trust the Bible more than your own skepticism about it. Right. But take as an opportunity to learn. Right. We shouldn't actually be afraid to learn about the Bible. Right. Um, you, what you may find is that some of your simplistic conceptions may be overturned. Um, I certainly, you know, had that happen in my own career. There's things I would have thought about the Bible when I was a freshman in high school that I don't think anymore. I hope, hope I've matured a bit in the way I think about what the Bible is and how it works, but my trust has only deepened. 
right. as a result. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today. It means a lot. Um, I know you're incredibly busy. You have a lot on your plate. So the fact that you would kind of go back to the basics with us for just a little while is awesome because I think it'll be really beneficial to the listeners that we have with us today. Um, is there anything you'd like to say? I know you've written a few books. I don't know if they're more advanced, less advanced, or any resources you might want to pitch for people um, just to check more of you out. Yeah, the main, main resource I would point people to if they're interested in learning more is uh, the Text and Canon Institute website. I'm the co-director there, and our website is textandcanon.org, and we have um, lots of articles on there about how we got the Bible. So not just New Testament and not just text criticism, but everything from Old Testament and then the question of canon and translations, and um, they're all um, they're all organized by level. So if you're a beginner, you can click the beginner under articles. You can click the beginner link and only get articles that are for beginners. Or if you want to do some more advanced ones, you can look for those too. So try to help people at different levels. But we're trying to um, introduce people to this fascinating world of how we got the Bible and give you more confidence in your trust in the Bible, but also just teach you about the history of of our faith in the process too. Well, Dr. Gray, thank you so much again for joining us. I I really do appreciate your time and thank you all for joining us as well. I appreciate you listening in and I hope you'll continue to tune in. Uh, Until next time, keep on reading your Bibles, keep on thinking critically about them and keep on applying the truths that we learn here to your lives. Thanks everyone.